0: Father, thank you for the privilege of studying the Word together. Would you use this time well to challenge us, convict us, and change us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. I wonder if you can think of a moment where you were brought to attention by something urgent. Perhaps you were in your meeting uh, and in a uncharacteristic manner. The door opens before the meeting is over. Your administrative assistant comes in. They make eye contact with you and you wonder why are they interrupting this meeting. We'll be done in just a few minutes and they say, your wife is on the phone. She says it's urgent. You immediately get up and leave the meeting. Maybe you're a mom with young kids and They're at school and you're at home or you're at work and your cell phone vibrates and you look down and you can see it's your child's school number. It's the office. You answer the phone and thinking to yourself, this is an odd time to get a call. The secretary on the other end says, ma'am, we have an urgent call. Ah, Urgent. You say the word with me. Urgent. Urgent. If you look up the word urgent in the dictionary, you have some of these kinds of meanings. The first meaning that you'll be giving, given is that urgent is something that is calling for immediate attention. It is pressing. The word pressing will be there. Further down the line, some of the breakdown definitions will say something like this. Urgent to serve as a motive or a reason why are we doing what we do what is the reason what is the motive it's because it has something of an urgent nature to it there is a reason there is a motive perhaps most in line with how we're using the word urgent here today is part of the definition that says it is an impulse or a force that drives. Something that is driving you. Why? Because it is, say it, urgent. It's urgent. We have a little mini three-week series to launch the new year here at Fellowship Bible Church. Just something that's been rolling around in the pastor's mind and a conviction of my heart. It's largely driven that we not be a complacent church when i think of the word urgent i think that the opposite of urgent must be complacency urgency versus complacency and so last week we introduced the concept and we did a little bit of a bible study to understand that living with urgency is really a very biblical concept We tried to point out that we're not talking about living stressed out. We don't need that. We're not talking about the fact that it might be, that it's wrong to read a book for leisure, or to take a vacation, or to live with some margin in your life. Some of us need major improvement in all of these areas. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about Thinking through the priorities, the impulses, the forces that drive us, that we live with a proper and biblical mindset given to urgency. Last week, living with urgency, um, what, what does that mean? This week, I want us to focus as a church, as a congregation, on the urgency of the gospel. Next week is our final message, and it will be Sanctity of Human Life Sunday next week. We'll try to handle that very appropriately for a public setting, but I do think it's important. And it will be entitled, The Urgency of the Hour. The next week, Pastor Mark Henson will be preaching in my absence as I participate in Matt White's... Um, installation at his new church at Belcroft Bible Church. Pastor Jim Shuppie will be giving the charge to his old congregation and I will have the privilege of giving the charge to Matt as they install him as their new pastor. And then the 31st of January, Lord willing, we will then have the great delight of turning back to Matthew chapter 12 and 13 and getting going with Matthew again. And I know you can't wait for that. In fact, to prime us and warm us up for that. Will you turn in Matthew's Gospel? And we're going to spend um, part of the early part of our message today on the urgency of the Gospel in the book of Matthew. Now I want you to understand that our message is in two phases today. There are two parts to the message. The first is a look at the Gospel itself. And I want you to see that when we look at the gospel, and I'm talking now of looking inward to the gospel. I I want us to do, in the first part of our message, an examination. I have a magnifying glass in my hand. We are going to scrutinize together and take a look within the gospel. And we want to see what is there in the DNA of the gospel. What is woven into the fiber of the gospel when you magnify it. And I want to show you that we're going to see that the gospel, in and of itself is an urgent gospel. When you look inward, you see that it's, it's written in the context of urgency. And the meanings that come out of it are urgent. The way that it was presented and, and the way that it was initiated in the New Testament, it is an urgent gospel. And the second part of our message, we're going to get our binoculars out, and we're going to look through the lens of what we learn from the urgency of the gospel in and of itself. And through those lens, we will then take a, take an outward look. And we will go from scrutiny and examination to magnification and outward look. And we want to see our world through the lens of this urgent gospel. And I want you to see that what we see when we look through the gospel binoculars only continues to compel us with the urgency of this gospel. Our end goal is that it would impact us early in 2016 as a congregation and that we would, by God's grace and through the working of His Holy Spirit in us, that we would completely do away with complacency in our own spiritual walk, in, in our spiritual growth, and then we would be characterized as a church Driven by the gospel. Before we get our magnifying glass out and we're going to stick mostly with Matthew because it gives sets up a a string of verses that I think I can show you that as we look into the origin of the gospel, as we look at the essence of the gospel, you will see that it is in the context of urgency. Let's just remind ourselves of something that we took a few minutes, not too many weeks ago, to define the gospel, You do know, right, that the word gospel really means good news. We use it in specific ways and we use the word gospel in in broader terms. And I am using it in both ways, I think. I'm speaking specifically of what Paul would have defined the gospel being in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what we had referenced some weeks ago. That in 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning of the chapter, about the first uh, 6, 7, 8 verses, the Apostle Paul defines down the gospel for us. He boils it down. This is the gospel. And in essence, what you find there is that the gospel or the good news is that Christ died for us because of our sin, was buried, and then that he rose again, and then finally, according to the scriptures, And three times, I think it is in that passage, he says, this is the gospel that Christ died for me. Yes, that's good news because I was a sinner and I was lost and condemned and I was set up to suffer the wages of my own sin. And that's a really bad deal. In fact, the only way I can pay the wages for my own sin in the presence of a holy God is that I have to be punished for all of eternity. If you don't like that concept, you have to take it up with a holy God. Largely, the reason we don't like that concept and we think it's just not fair is because we do not understand. And in fact, we far underestimate the holiness of God and the significance of his holiness and how he absolutely cannot look at sin. And we minimize the problem of sin in our lives. And actually, we think when you stop and think about it, that we're pretty good. It means you have a very jaundiced view of the holiness of God and you have a very inflated view of your own righteousness, which the Bible describes are as filthy rags to be discarded. So the only way you can take care of your own sin is to suffer for all of eternity. That's a big deal. We don't want that. And that's the beauty of the cross. That's why we, that's why we sing about the cross. We already have this morning. That's why we sing about how we have a God who will forgive us of sins of the deepest dye. Did you catch that phrase out of that old hymn? who is a pardoning God like me. Those sins of deepest dye. That's a throwback from 150 years ago or whenever that hymn was written when everybody would have understood what an inkwell was and how you would use a quill pen or you would use some kind of a dipping kind of pen. And every once in a while what happens? The inkwell spills on the wooden desktop. And from then on there is a dye in the wood and you can't get that ink out of there. And the point of the hymn writer is making is that we have a God who is so pardoning that he can take the sins of deepest dye and he can remove them. And that happens at the cross. Because only Christ could take the sin and the eraser of his perfect life and erase out our sinfulness. When we come and we A, admit our sinfulness, B, believe that he is the Christ, and C, we confess that Jesus is Lord. We recognize that He's the Lord. We recognize that He's the only Savior of the world. That is the heartbeat of the gospel, but the gospel is even more entailing, and and really the gospel is the story of our entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books. It is really a, it is nothing other than a platform for the love of God in Christ for us. And that's what this story is all about. And that is the gospel. In Titus chapter 2, it talks about this gospel. And it talks about the grace of God that brings salvation. That's the gospel. The grace of God that brings salvation. It has appeared to all men all around the world. But it even goes on, the gospel does, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasures and to live self-controlled and upright lives in this present age. You see, the gospel is more than just a saving element. The gospel is the element that keeps us living. And so one day, a 16-year-old punk named Eugene Marceau who cussed and swore and fought at school and worked on the farm in Northwoods of Wisconsin and quit school after eighth grade to work, and was just mean to everybody, "Here's the gospel." And he's convicted of his sinfulness, and the gospel saves him. And the gospel begins to do its work and transform his mind. And so from then on, the, the Marceau household was impacted by the gospel. And the gospel is the change agent and it's the life-giving agent and it's the, it's the eye-opening agent so that we can see truth versus the darkness and lies of the world. It's all the gospel. And let's look at that gospel and see in and of itself that, that it is an urgent gospel. Looking within now, let's, let's uh, pay close attention. We're in Matthew and we're going to begin in chapter three and I want to give you a list quickly but plainly and clearly i trust of how the gospel when it is examined is and scrutinized that in the threads in the inner weave of the gospel is urgency woven into it first of all i want you to see that when john announced when john the baptist launched his public ministry, he launched it with a warning of urgency. You need to know, and I'm going to assume that you know, that John the Baptist announced the ministry of our Lord Jesus. In other words, John's job was to say that the good news is coming. The living good news is coming. My job is to tell you Jesus is on his way. Messiah is coming. Number one, I want you to see when you look at the gospel that John launched his public ministry with a warning of urgency. It's in Matthew chapter 3. Look at verse 2. John's message was this when he came out of the wilderness preaching in Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you see urgency in that verse? Do you see that when John began to proclaim that it is time to set ourselves up for the gospel, for the living word, for Christ to come and change our lives, A, you need to repent, and B, you need to do it now because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is a sense of urgency, even in the announcement of Messiah coming. Secondly, I want you to see that as our Lord launched His public ministry for the gospel, that it was with a message of urgency. Turn the page to chapter 4 and verse 17, and it is almost an identical phrase to what John the Baptist said. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, this is the beginning of our Lord's public ministry, you'll recall, from our Matthew studies, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. That means to admit And to do away with, to turn away from, to renounce, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is time now for action. Don't you think that's an urgent verse? I think it is. That with the coming of the gospel comes a demand. And and it's not like implicit in the verse is not, hey, you got plenty of time. Take it easy. If you get around to it, think about this. No, implicit in the verses, repent. And the idea is, today is the day of this salvation. Because the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. Not only did John launch his public ministry for Christ or the gospel with a warning of urgency. Our Lord launched his public ministry with a message of urgency. I want you to notice as you just look down to verse 22 right here where we are, number three, that the disciples responded to this message of Christ with urgency, with a sense of urgency. Look what it says. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He calls these disciples, Peter, Andrew, fishermen. And he says in verse 19, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And notice the first word of verse 20. Immediately, immediately, and then he called James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, mending their nets, and he called them in verse twenty two immediately they le- listen, in essence, when the disciples defined the good news, they responded immediately it 's what you see in the gospel when you look in at it, the disciples responded to Christ with a sense of urgency. Number four, I want you to see that in the teaching of Christ, it often reflected a sense of urgency. You see it in John's message, you see it in Christ's message, you see it in the response of the disciples. And you see in the, in, throughout the teaching of our Lord, there is reflected a sense of urgency. Let's continue in Matthew and let me show you several of these points. I want you to see that as our Lord taught the gospel, the good news, that embedded in the gospel was a call for obedience. One of the examples is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He spends three chapters worth of teaching. It represented hours of teaching. And notice the concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount that we studied some months ago. Chapter 7, verse 24. Chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He's talking about obedience. You hear the word and you do the word. You see, hearing the word is not obedience. Doing the word is obedience. And so he's been teaching chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, this volume of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And now he says it's time to obey. And whoever does this, if you've heard it and you do it, is like a man who built his house on a rock, and the rain falls, and the flood comes, and the wind blows, and they beat the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. In contrast, verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, so that's disobedience, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I think there's urgency embedded in the passage. There's a storm coming. There's teaching. You have to obey. You have to build your house on the rock. It's not like when you get around to it later on, build a strong house. It's you better obey and build because the storm's coming. The wind's going to blow. The flood's going to come. There is a sense of urgency. You better sandbag. It's time. There's urgency in this stuff. I wonder if I'm not talking to some people who can relate to this passage. And the rain's been falling on your life and the floods have been coming up and the wind's been blowing on your house and it's caving in and you're saying to yourself, I don't know what's going on with my life. I'll tell you what's going on here with your life. You're not walking in obedience to the word of God. You probably know better than the way you've been living. And you've been trying to take your ideas and you've been trying to take the world's ideas and you've been trying to take the drives of your own flesh and put it all together in your own lifestyle and it has nothing to do with Christ. But you were raised up to follow Christ. You know the word of God. It's not working. Your life is coming unhinged and you're moaning about it. Well, duh. Jesus said, if you don't do it, your house going to fall down. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to face adversity if you're walking with Christ. But I'm telling you, it's all the difference in the world. And there's a sense of urgency here. Do it now. That was Christ's call for obedience. How about his call for followers? Look at chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of of the sea there, the lake. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, buddy, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of God, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you can follow me, but we don't have a place to live. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Do you see urgency in his teaching? Not only in his call to obedience, but in his call for followership. Okay, come and follow me. Guy says, hey, let me just go take care of my dad's estate. Let me make sure my dad's funeral goes well. Let me settle the estate. Let me get everything in order. And Jesus said, no... Let him bury himself. Come follow me. You you can see right now is the time. There is a sense of urgency in the gospel. How about his call for laborers? Turn the page to chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. His call for obedience, his call for followership, his call for laborers. They all have a sense as he presents his words of the gospel to people of urgency. 935 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, look what he was proclaiming, the gospel. That's what we're talking about, of the kingdom. He was healing every affliction and disease. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Just... Do you see urgency in that passage? There is a field ready to combine. The harvest is on. You don't say, oh yeah, when I get around to it. The number one thing on your mind is, It's pulling in the yield of the harvest. Right now is the time. The grain is ripe. And Jesus uses the agricultural word picture that the fields are white unto harvest. The idea is that you need to be praying now. That's the fourth Sunday of the month around here, by the way, on Sunday evening, praying for our missionaries, praying for the lost specifically, where you have to shut off the TV, get up from your couch, and come here at 6 o'clock to pray specifically. Now, you can pray anywhere. But it's urgent enough that we get together to pray about it at once a month. The harvest picture is a picture of urgency. His call for labors. Oh, There's more. Let me just quickly rattle. Chapter 12, verses 46 through 50 is a very interesting picture here. This is, almost, this is just a little bit ahead of where we're going to return to in chapter 12, in the middle of 12, next on the 31st. to this is concern in Christ's life of preaching and doing His Father's will. He's still speaking to people. And behold, this is 1246, while He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and His brothers stood outside asking to speak to Him. But He replied to the man who told Him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. You got the picture there? Jesus is busy about ministry, and some guy interrupts his meeting and comes threading his way up through the people to him and whispers, Master, your mother and your brothers and your sister are outside. In other words, they want to talk to you and, and right now. You're being interrupted in your meeting right now. And Jesus says, Jesus just says, I'm already talking to my mother and my brothers and my sisters. So concerned about the message, so concerned about the will of his father, he evidently delays responding to his own intimate family. This is such an urgent hour that my mom and my brothers and sister can just wait. They only want to know whether I like lasagna or meatballs in my spaghetti anyway. It's okay. This is more urgent. His concern for doing his Father's will, it always had a sense of urgency. I've got more important duties. Finally, how about the content of his parables? Just flip the page to chapter 13. In Christ's teaching ministry of his parables, you regularly have a sense of urgency. Eventually in Matthew, we'll get, for example, to the that long parable of the master who goes away and gives out different amounts of talents or amounts of money to his servants. And the whole basis of the passage is that the master is going on a long trip, but he could return at any time. And it brings a sense of urgency to the whole story. Regularly in Christ's parable parabolic teaching ministry as he used parables to communicate the gospel there is a sense of urgency let's summarize it in these two short ones verse 44 of chapter 13 the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then his joy goes and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field do you see urgency there From walking across the field to changing his plans for the day with the reality that I have found a treasure. The whole point of the passage is the gospel is the treasure. And he goes and he sells everything that he has. Can you imagine him telling his wife that one? Hey, honey, I have a new plan for us. We're going to sell everything. Why? Because I found something more valuable. Don't you sense urgency? You didn't do it next week. It's right now. Same thing with the guy at the flea market looking for pearls in the next section. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who on finding one pearl of great value, it's like this great discovery. Whoa, look what I found. He went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Don't you have the idea of immediacy, of urgency, of right now? It's it's what the gospel does. It brings a, a... An impulse, a drive for right now that we have an important agenda. There is not room for complacency in my life. Um, That is the first part. That is the magnifying glass looking into the gospel. Let me very quickly summarize the binocular part. I have my dad's old binoculars. So we have the lens of the gospel with which I can't see a thing actually. (laughs) Take the capsule. (laughs) Ha You know, when you want to look closely at something, you don't use binoculars. It's the horizon we're trying to catch. But we have the lens of the gospel here. How uh, in in the essence of the gospel, this sense of urgency, now as we look around and we look out at our world, what does the urgency of the gospel tell us about how we see the rest of the world? Let me just rattle this quickly because I do recognize the time is gone. I want you to see that the need that we look out to is the need for this urgent gospel in the world. Number one, can I suggest that through the lens of the gospel, one of the things we're going to recognize as we look around is we're going to see, number one, the vastness, the vastness of unreached regions. India comes to mind. You know how many people live in India? 1.2 billion Do you know how many people of the 1.2 billion know that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life? Do you know how many of the 1.2 billion in India are going to pay the penalty and the wages for their own sin? Almost 1.2 billion. Ah, who cares? How about China? China? the church is growing rapidly the underground church is growing rapidly in china 1.4 billion in a few years india is going to take over china by the way as the world leader leading uh, largest nation 1.4 billion in china let's say there's 0.4 0.4 billion believers that means that at least 1 billion chinese are going to pay the penalty for their own sin who cares You see, the essence of the gospel is that it is an urgent gospel. And when I begin to see through the lens of the gospel, the world around me, I cannot help but notice the vastness of unreached regions. And it ought to bring some kind of urgency to me. The Joshua group, which is a group that that is looking at these uh, missiological issues As far as the gospel and going out around the world, say that there are 3,961, 3,961 unreached people groups. That is a definable people group by language, culture, and border region. There are still 3,961, and that means that they have no access to the gospel. They have never heard the name of Jesus. I don't know how many people that is. It's at their website. One of the things that they talk about is the 1040 window. For some years now, missiologists have defined the 1040 window. The 1040 window is a rectangular area on our globe that covers almost all of North Africa, parts of the Middle East and on up. It's between the 10th and 40th degree north in latitude. And it creates a big geographical rectangle. You lay that rectangle on these dimensions and you will find that it's like over 90% of unreached people in population live inside that window. It is a very difficult region of the world. Let me read to you quickly the names of the specific nations that are in the 1040 window. Afghanistan, Albania, Algeria, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Bangladesh. I'm going to mispronounce some of these and I'm going to go fast. Benin, Butan, Brunei, Burkina Faso, Cambodia, Chad, China, China, Hong Kong, China, Macau, uh, Djibouti, East Timor, Egypt, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Gambia, Guinea, Guinea, Bissau, India, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Tajikistan, Tajikistan, Thailand, Tunisia, Turkey, Turkmenistan, United Arab Emirates, Uzbekistan, Vietnam, West Bank, Gaza, Western Sahara, and Yemen. That's huge! Who cares? I mean, what in the world am I supposed to do about it? Let me just list the rest. I look through my lenses and I see the vastness of unreached regions. I see the brokenness of people. This is Mark chapter 5 and the crazy man. I use him regularly as an illustration because he is striking. We don't have to turn there. Striking. This crazy, naked, demon possessed man living in the tombs, cutting himself out of control, breaking chains apart, wailing, screaming. That's how the chapter begins and the chapter ends with him sitting there clothed and in his right mind because of the gospel. Listen, the brokenness of people brings urgency to the gospel. People are messed up. Here's how you process it if you're me. The guy over there, he's, he's nuts. I want to say stronger words, but there's kids in the audience. You know, it's like, I'll say the word idiot, stupid, bad word. Sorry. He's not an idiot. He's not stupid. He's broken. He doesn't know the gospel. The gospel never changed his dad. And so the gospel never impacted his family. And so sin has consumed him or he believes in a system of darkness And he believes things that are not true to the degree that he'll cut people's throats for that. And he's absolutely deceived and he's going to pay the price for the wages of his own sin forever. The brokenness of people, closely related to that, number three, is the callousness of the average heart. You say, okay, I'm going to get fired up for the gospel. I'm going to share it with people. And then you realize that what you run into are stony hearts out there, don't they? I want to tell you that is part of the judgment on America. That the average person in Walmart doesn't give spit about your gospel. And their heart is hard. And it's already entered into judgment. But that makes it urgent. Hearts are hardening. We have the truth. How about the seriousness of the consequences? Number four, the seriousness of the consequences. Listen closely, John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you know how serious that is? In Revelation chapter 20, it says that there is a Lamb's book of life, and if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will pay for all of eternity the wages of your sin. That is what sin gets you. That brings urgency to the gospel. Finally, number five, it's the nearness of the Lord's return. First Thessalonians 5 tells us that he's going to come like a thief in the night. He's going to come at a time when we don't know. At Ron's memorial service, we read John 14, 1 through 6. Verse 3 of John 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus told his disciples. And if I go, I will come again, receive you unto myself. He's coming. The, the nearness of the Master's return brings urgency to us. How do we apply this? Quickly, three things. Number one, there must be no place for complacency in this church. If you're bored with the gospel, you better figure out a way to get over it because it's too important. And if you're so embedded in the world that you don't care about the gospel, you better figure out a way to get unembedded. There is no place for complacency in 2016. The gospel is too urgent. Number two, that number one was kind of an attitude adjustment. Number two, missions and evangelism must be a priority in this local church. Do you know that in local churches across America that World missions and evangelism Are like microscopic in their agenda Do you know how much money we give to missions here In our total Percentage and budget I think by the end of the year with special giving We're bumping 15% About 15 cents on the dollar Goes to missions Does that sound urgent to you? I would love to see us somewhere around fifty percent going out to missions. Just give it away, man. Get people out there. Get us out there. It bothers me that the first weekend in March at our World Missions Conference, we only have to set up about eight tables here to fit everybody that comes. Because you know, you'd have to take a shower and put clean jeans on to come to the event. It's not worth it. That's complacency. Come and get fired up. Come and meet our missionaries. Come and figure out what's going on around the world. Come and figure out what the gospel can and ought to be doing. And number three, it's time for us to stop making excuses. It's time for us to stop making excuses about our own role in sharing Christ with other people. We try to make it easy on you here. Um, If you bring a friend to church... I try pretty hard not to embarrass you. You know how you see the pastor through the lens of your friend? It's like, eh. Church is, you know, we are who we are. It's not that hard to come in, is it? How about all the picnics that we do? How about the wild game feast? How about your neighbor's kids coming to camp? Do you know that camp has a regular gospel emphasis? Get your neighbor's kids and bring them to camp. Just figure out a way. In the near future, there's going to be more of the May I Ask You a Question gospel tract on the back counter for us. I want to end with a story about myself yesterday. For Christmas, I got Jonathan tickets for the two of us to go up to the Oklahoma State game at WVU. So we left at 8 o'clock yesterday morning. We tried to find every McDonald's and Burger King on the way. And we... Had a good time. And it was a one o'clock game, and we enjoyed the game, and it was good to see West Virginia win strong, and we just had a good time. We're sitting way up in nosebleed in the Coliseum, and we got there an hour early, and almost no one is there. And there's like there's these three guys in this middle of this section, and they're the only ones there. And we go up the stairs, and sure enough, we're the next two seats. It's like this whole empty section, and there's five of us sitting together. Before we left yesterday morning, I had taken my May I Ask You a Question book, one of them, and I put it in my pocket, and I actually breathed up a prayer because I'm pretty convicted about my own complacency. And I, and I put it in my pocket, and I thought to myself, Lord, I, I prayed to the Lord briefly in my own mind. I just said, Lord, would you help me give that out to somebody today? It's so clear. It's so easy. It's a good one to leave. it you got bad news. You're a sinner. You're going to die. Blah, 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 and It's bad. It's what the Bible says. And then the good news. And there it is, and it just, it's so clear and it's easy. So easy. I was sitting next to these three, these three guys from Grafton, West Virginia, good old West Virginia boys, and, and well, we just started talking. We're all from West Virginia, we're family, man. And we just had a good time talking, and it was two brothers and a, and a son and a nephew there. And they enjoyed the game, and the oldest of the brothers was right next to me, I kept bumping his leg and stuff. Somewhere during the course of the game, I heard him talking about, do you have your cemetery plot bought? I thought, that's pretty interesting. At the ball game, talking about whether I got my cemetery prearranged, my funeral prearranged. At the end of the game, I said, man, it's good to meet you guys. You guys have a safe trip. We had talked different things, you know. Good to meet you guys. And the older guy, I found out he was 69 years old. That's not that old, but remember last week, right? Three score and 10, there you go. He says to me, yeah, I don't know if I'll make it next year. don't know if I'll be alive next year. Where did that come from? Man, I'm like digging in my pockets. I get my, may I ask you a question out? <laughs> I had, a, I had a, a doorway you could drive a truck through. And I had it in my mind. And I was going to give him my, may I ask you a question booklet? And I was going to say, well, buddy... If you think you're gonna die pretty soon, read this here little book because it tells you in the from the Bible how to make sure you go to heaven. That's all I was gonna say. And here's your book, and I left it in the car. <laughs> Dumb pastor. John Denver singing "Take Me Home, Country Roads." It was perfect for funeral. Don't don't you think that we can just do better?